we're in 2 Kings 13, and I, I'm very excited about the text, unique text today. Um, I think it's appropriate for, for the men, for the fathers. There is this call to keep going. Um, before we jump into that, let me just review a bit, because you, know, you guys know we do this. We've been spending like 14, it's been like a, over a year in this, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Everyone says, no, no, you need eight-week series at a church. No, we're, we're proving that wrong. We're like spending some time in these books. Um, and here's the idea. Um, we've looked at a very significant change to Israel. God's hope and call for Israel was to function together as one nation, sadly under Solomon, pursuing the hearts of different gods and idols, the nation split. You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. In the north, the northern part was called what? Israel. I know it's like a quick question because you're like, isn't it all Israel? No, the, the 10 tribes in the north was Israel. The southern half was called Judah. And you have Benjamin and Judah, uh, the Levites. You have the temple there. And you have different times where they're at odds even with each other, sadly. Uh, what we've been looking at in this throughout this time is just God has sent different prophets to call whether the north or the south back to him. That it, primarily, we've been looking at the northern kingdom. Um, we're going to put the list of kings up so far that we've just been like walking through. Uh, I, we put this on social media. We shared this with you guys. We asked you to, this weekend, we're making a little bit of a jump to read 8 through 12. It's more historical narrative. It's this king passed and this king took over. God raised up a king in the northern part of Israel called Jehu. Uh, Jehu was the guy that was to bring justice and judgment. Kill Ahab's wife, kill the bad kings of Judah and even of the north. So he takes over. Jehu uh, is used by God actually, but sadly it says this in 2 Kings 10.31. It says, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So just to kind of get a big picture of what's happening and what's going on, um, remember the northern kingdom of Israel, sadly, never had one fully good king. Jehu's the only one really primarily that's like mixed. God is using him to execute justice. God is using him to fulfill his will in the north for a period of time. But even he sought other gods. And here's the phrase I want to point out. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Here's what we're going to see moving forward in the second half of 2 Kings. Uh, you're going to see these different kings rise up. And if you've ever wondered, like, what prophet went to what king what, what period of time did that prophet speak into this? We're going to start seeing more of that. Like you're actually going to see Amos, Micah, even Jonah very soon on the scene. Not primarily in the book of Second Kings, but we're going to try to show you at what time. Like Isaiah, recently the prophet Isaiah speaking to Uzziah, Hezekiah. So if you've ever like gotten confused, you're like, I don't understand the major prophets, the minor prophets. Um, we're going to hopefully explain that clearly moving forward because now we're starting to see these, these minor and major prophets jump into the scene. So here we are in Second Kings 13, and we're actually looking at Elisha's death. We haven't really heard from Elisha until 2 Kings 9, when he raises up Jehu. But then Elisha is basically now on his deathbed. Elisha has served under a lot of different kings. The one we're looking at today and focusing at is Jehoash or Joash. And he's the one who meets with Elisha on his deathbed. That's in the north, in the kingdom of Israel. Now, I know this is where you get confused because this is where I get confused. A lot of different times you had the same name in the north and the south, there's different theories behind that. So there's actually another king in the south part of Judah, also named Joash or Jehoash. It's easy to get this confused. The theories behind this is like maybe they wanted, they either changed their name or wanted the name so their name would live on over the north or over the south. So see similar names. But we're going to be looking at Joash or Jehoash in the north meeting with Elisha. 
Remember, so you have Elijah, the great prophet, raise up Elisha. The Spirit of God is on him. Elisha does the most miracles in the Bible outside of Jesus. He does the number two. He's the number two guy. Most recorded miracles in the Bible are by Elisha. Even on his death and even with his bones, we'll see. He does a miracle, all right? Elisha's just different. Elisha, we've been reading through this. It just reminds us so much of the ministry of Jesus, how he ran around, how the blind could see, the lame could walk, the dead were raised. Elisha really had that, that really ministry of Jesus. So the reason why I want you to see this, and we can put this back up, the northern kingdom, we're going to be looking at Joash meeting with Elisha. In the southern kingdom, you also have Joash, all right, and the guy named Amaziah. And this is the, while Joash in the north is king, Joash in the south is king in Amaziah. Are you guys still with me? I'm so sorry. The reason why I do want to do this, the reason why I explain this is, again, throughout the years, if you've grown up in this, maybe you have not grown up in this. This is perfect. Um, you're like, what king was where, north, south? We hope it's clear. We want it to be understandable. Elisha's about to see death. There's going to be some new kings in the north, some wicked kings. There's going to be some decent kings in the south. But God is still constantly throwing different prophets to north and south, calling them to repentance, calling them to live justly. And uh, we're going to walk through that moving forward and hopefully get the big picture of what's going on. But here's where we're at today. Elisha's on his deathbed. Joash, an evil king, uh, did something good. He goes to see Elisha. Even though he's evil, even though he's wicked, we talked about this. God is still so good to the north despite their wickedness. Not having one good king, God still loves these people. God still shows favor to these people. He's trying to protect his people. And so we're going to be looking at Joash meeting with Elisha. It's a really unique story. There's a lot of symbolism in this story. We'll hopefully explain that, break that down. But what we're seeing is, here's what Elisha is essentially telling Joash. Keep going. Why did you stop? Why did you stop? Keep going. Uh, for every man and woman in this room, but I think it's just appropriate light. It's Father's Day. Men, keep going. It's easy to lose passion. It's easy to lose focus. Keep going. Elisha's upset that he doesn't keep going. He asked him to do something. He kind of does it half-heartedly. Elisha's upset. We'll see what happens. Elisha dies. His bones heal some people. Weird story. Welcome to the Bible. We love it. It's amazing. Let's read it. All right, 2 Kings chapter 13. We're actually going to read it just so you can kind of feel. Verse 14 through 21. That's where we're at. 2 Kings 13, the death of Elisha. Man, that's been so fun walking through his life. Let's read it. Verse 14. When Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. Imagine he's 90 years old at this point in time, laying his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck uh, three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him. And says, you have, should have struck five or six times, huh? Then you would have struck down the Syrians until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What is going on? We'll talk about it. Verse 20. 
So Elisha died. <laughs> that's, just, that's it. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, bands of the Moabites used to invade the lands of Israel in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. There we go. That's the ministry of Elisha. You're like, what? Welcome to how awesome the Bible is. We're going to pray. We're going to walk through this. Um, here's what we're going to see. Keep going. The story here shows us there's hope for today and with Elisha's death, and yet this resurrection of this man, there's hope for tomorrow. So that's what we're going to look at. You guys ready? Let me pray. Father, we just want to thank you so much for who you are. Um, Lord, we don't want to rush this time. We do want to sit at your feet, Jesus, and just say thank you. God, thank you that you've been so good, so patient, so gracious to us. Uh, Lord, we ask that um, when we come to, to scripture texts like this, that we're trying to understand and, and what is the meaning today, uh, Lord, we, we're just thankful for what you said in Romans, that this was written for our learning and our hope. And God, we ask that today you would restore just hope in people's lives, that you are a God who cares about today, you're a God who cares about tomorrow. And we just ask that we'd cling to you, and that we just praise you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Uh, dads, fathers, hopefully you guys will appreciate this. I don't know if you guys remember those progressive commercials that uh, came out a couple years ago about becoming like your parents over time. You guys remember those like, we can't stop you from becoming your parents, but we can help you with bundle. I don't know, whatever. But those commercials that I love, I love the coaching, like at the end of a movie, they're watching a movie and everyone's clapping. It's like, we don't clap. We don't do that. Like, I just love the, like becoming like your dad. My wife texted me this week. I, I, she worded it like, what do you want for Father's Day? Or what do you want to do for Father's Day? I literally texted back and it's like immediately read it. I'm like, I just want to save money on Father's Day. <laughs> That's what I, I, I'm realizing. Something's happening to me, man. I'm getting old. I'm like, did I just, uh, yeah, I did. I'm, I can see how like I'm becoming more like my father. I remember it was so weird as a kid. I'd always see my dad sleep with a pillow in between his legs. I'm like, why do you do that? He's like, my knees hurt. And now I sleep with a pillow in between my legs. My knees hurt. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. It's all these like little things that you kind of catch yourself doing. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm becoming my father. But you're like, I'm becoming my mother. What is going on? nothing makes me more angry. It's true. It's so bad. The lights being left on. Nothing. I, I get so angry. I'm like, why are lights left on? We can save 40 cents. And I'm like, huh, what is happening to me? It's, it's so bizarre. But it's funny to see that and watch that progression kind of happen. And one of those many things, you know, I remember probably nothing made my dad upset more than when he asked me to do something and I did the job halfway. Um, I was very, you know, I'd mow the lawn, but there'd be like still pockets of grass. And I just remember like the fury of like, if I ask you to do it, you do it well, right? And I see that me and my son now. I see that of like, we asked you to clean, not clean part of the room, the whole room. Like I see, I just see some of those things happening. And it's funny how what does frustrate us at times is when something is halfway done. Like, I don't like that. Here's what is going on with Elisha and Joe, Joe, I almost said it wrong, jo, Jehoash or Joash. Here's what's going on. He's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot these arrows. We're going to strike the ground with them. I'll explain that. We're going to shoot these arrows. We're going to strike the ground. He does it three times. He's like, why did you do it three times? You should have done it five or six. He's like, you didn't, you didn't tell me, right? It's kind of a bizarre story. Like, what do you mean? There's almost this unspoken thing happening to him. Like, no, no, you did it, but you didn't fully do it. You did it half-heartedly. Now, we're going to explore that and jump into that. But here's what I'm learning from this text. Here's what I see from this text. This is the end of Elisha's ministry. 
It's like the great prophet. God sent Samuel, Elijah, Elisha. There's been so many phenomenal prophets. Now we're going to see some minor prophets come in, like I mentioned. We're going to see Amos and Isaiah and Zephaniah. And the guys are like, who are these guys? We're going to start to see them and what kings they spoke to during which kingdom reign. And it's, fast, it's absolutely fascinating to me. However, like Elisha, this powerful prophet who did mighty miracles, he's on his deathbed. Uh, Joe, Joash goes to meet him, speak with him, which is very wise. And here's what I see Elisha doing. He's giving Joash, the king of the north, hope. He's saying, you're going to attack the, Syri- the Syrians and you're going to win. He gives him hope for that day. And then this part of the story that we'll explore as well, where he dies, is buried, a, man's, a man who's dead is thrown into the same tomb as him, touches his bones and resurrects. The story of Elisha gives us hope for today and hope for tomorrow. And so here's like kind of the two points today. If you're like looking for points, hope for today, hope for tomorrow. And I do feel like this is so fitting because the point is this keep going, keep going. We need hope, man. I need hope. Hope is powerful. Keep going. Why did you stop? Is essentially what Elisha is asking. Why did you stop? Keep going. There's hope for today. There's hope for tomorrow. Let's break this down a little bit. All right, verse 14. Let's break down this story. Hope for today, number one. Look what he says in verse 14. It says, now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, which is just a funny way to word that to me because it's like, yeah, usually when he's fallen sick to die, it's, there's an illness. I don't know. Just worded kind of funny. Here's what's fascinating. A lot of people point out, and I, I do think it's worth pointing out. Um, this is different. Elijah, his mentor, was what? He was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw that, man. He's the guy that has a double portion of the spirit. Like, what's going to happen to me? He has a sickness unto death. You know, that you see this with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see them actually pass away in their old age, like in their sleep, like a very like beautiful, restful kind of passing. Uh, you know, all of us kind of probably want more of that peaceful passing, um, but we don't always get that. I think this is actually, it's beautiful and fascinating that here's one of the most powerful prophets I've ever lived. The guy who did the most miracle in the Bibles outside of Jesus. This guy dies of a sickness. I do think that's worth noting. Sadly, I do think there's been different times and points throughout Christian history where we've had kind of different healing or faith movements where basically there's been these claims if you really had faith, you wouldn't be sick. I think this has been such a damning theology, such a painful and hurtful theology. It's like, if you really had faith, you wouldn't be sick with sickness. I'm sorry, the most powerful prophet up until this time died of a sickness. And I do think that sometimes the church has maybe, because there is also beautiful acts of faith as well in this text. So we've gone to extremes. We're like, oh, if you have faith, you won't get sick or if you have faith, whatever you ask, whatever you ask selfishly will be given to you. And like, that is not the case. And then we go to the other extreme where we maybe don't emphasize faith and the beauty of faith and how God meets us at our faith. So I actually think this text shows us both sides. Here's a guy who dies of a sickness, who's the most powerful prophet who's ever lived. And then also he's calling us to live and act in a, a faith manner and a faith that brings hope. And I think there's like, there is nuance in the scriptures and we got to be careful sometimes how it's communicated. It does make me sad. We see the same thing with Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's like, I have this thorn in my flesh. I prayed three times for God to remove it. My handkerchiefs have been used to heal people and I can't get rid of this thorn in the flesh, whatever that might've been. I can't get rid of this. And it's, it's not always the manner of faith. It's not always that. God's will for Elisha was to die of a sickness. And the beautiful and crazy thing to me is here he is on his uh, deathbed still doing ministry. Did anyone else catch that? Elisha's on his deathbed like, come here, let me lay my hands on you. Let me show you how to shoot this bow. He's still talking to him. He's still speaking hope into him. It's almost this idea of, no, no, even on my death, like God can still use my life. 
even when I'm sick in bed, God can still use my life. That is so beautiful to me. It's so beautiful to me that God's like, I'm going to use you up until your last breath. I even think of my, my pastor, Pastor Chuck, who like preached on Sunday and like died on Tuesday. I'm like, what the heck is that? I'm like, probably should rest at home. You know, like on his like, it literally has oxygen and he's preaching. I remember seeing that. I'm like, okay, this guy, just rest a little bit. But I love that God's like, I'm going to use you until your very last breath. Elisha wanted to be used until his very last breath. It says in verse 14, we'll keep going with the, the verse. It says, Elisha had fallen sick with the illness, which was to die. Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, this is fascinating because Joash, remember, he's not a good king. He's a wicked king. He knows something that's different about Elisha. He's like, Elisha, the prophet, the one who's like spared us from wars, the one who's helped us, like we wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't be here. The, the guy that spared us from famine, like we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Elisha. So he actually has respect which I, I can actually, I want to give a shout out to, to Joash in this way. It's like, good for you to actually go down and meet with this guy. I love what Spurgeon says about this from, uh, from Elisha's perspective. Spurgeon said, let us seek to live that even ungodly men may miss us when we are gone. I love that. Even like when even ungodly men, that they might miss us. Let us live in such a way where it's like, I got to find that guy out. There's something powerful about that guy, Elisha. So again, I got to give credit to him because he's like, let me meet with this guy. This guy has helped us. This guy's helped us in so many profound ways. Now, the phrasing, even like the, my father, my father, like you've been a father to this nation. You've been a father to our people, the horsemen and its chariots. What is that? There's two ideas behind that. One idea is he's saying, you've been more powerful than the army of Israel. Like you've helped us way more than the chariots and horses we have. That's never stopped anything. But you, man, you have. Also that phrase, the, horse, uh, the horsemen and the chariots, that's the same phrase that's used in 2 Kings 2 about Elijah who's taken into heaven. The horsemen and chariots kind of came around him during the whirlwind, like the, the, the spiritual heavenly horsemen and chariots. It's almost like he's making a connection to his mentor. And it's just a beautiful thing. He's showing him so much respect going to him. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. I have to give Joash credit because he's going to him and he's remembering him. He's honoring him. He's weeping. This evil, wicked king is weeping like, oh my gosh, we're about to lose the greatest gift to this country, this prophet, this one who speaks forth the word of God. There, again, there are so many men and women in the faith who I still look back. I was reading some missionary stories of different women and what they've done and what they went through for the gospel. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to meet these women in heaven. I was reading different stories of just men in the past and the authors I still read and love who are not with us anymore. And I'm like, oh, I cannot wait. There's something so cool. There's like honor in that. He's going, he's honoring them. He's, he's bringing it to them. And it, it, here's the idea. Um, he's basically crying out for help on his deathbed. Even though he's dying, Elisha, even though he's sick, basically Joash is like, uh, man, do you have anything left for me before we breathe our last? So let's keep reading verse 15. It says, so he's crying out, my father, my father, uh, the horsemen of Israel. Verse 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrow. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands 
on the king's hands. All right, so let me just make sure that this, this is understood. The context is Israel is constantly being under attack from the Syrians. Like, the Syrians are constantly attacking them. They need help. They need peace. They need provision. There's actually a prophecy uh, earlier in chapter 13, verse 4. We'll put the verse up here about a savior who would come. This is fascinating, but it's, it's uh, 13, verse 4. It says, Then Jeho- Jehoahaz, great names, uh, sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Assyria, Assyria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. The idea behind this is Jehoaz is the king before, evil, wicked king, did a lot of messed up stuff, but he still in his mind goes, I'm going to seek favor. I need favor from God. God's like, all right, there will be a savior who will rescue you from the Syrians. There's a lot of debate who this savior is. Is it messianic? Probably. Is it pointing to Jesus? Probably. But what about their present moment in time? The savior might have actually been Joash, who's shooting this arrow, who God's going to give him to victory. It might have been Elisha, the Savior to come, that Elisha's here to help them. Don't really know exactly, but God has basically promised the nation of Israel, even though the Syrians are attacking you, I am going to deliver you. So Joash is going to him kind of with that in mind of like, hey, you're about to die. We're still surrounded by the Syrians. What can you do for us? And you see kind of this idea of him saying, okay, grab a bow. He does everything he says, notice. Grab a bow. He grabs it. Open the window. Opens the window. Puts his hands, draw it back, draws it back. Just step by step, listening so far to everything he's saying. And there is this phrase that I have to point out. Uh, it's verse 16. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. The idea is um, God is with the king. There's this idea that God is almost this con- like transfer of power, of authority, of let me guide you, let me help you. The main idea, and I want you to maybe write it out this way if you are taking notes, is like side by side with God, you will have victory over the enemy. So the idea is like his hands are on his hands. They're drawing the bow back. This old man, you imagine like his wrinkly skin, maybe shaky hands, but you see him holding his, helping him out in a sense, putting his hands on his hands. He draws the, the arrow back. And he, this idea of the prophet, we have to understand what a prophet is because I don't know if we really get it. A prophet is an ambassador in a sense of God to the people. Like, so whatever a prophet says, it's as good as if God himself has said it. Remember, a priest represents the people to God. A prophet represents God to the people. And so this idea of the prophet putting his hands on his hands and saying, like, I'm with you. I'm side by side with you. You're not alone in this. With God, you can defeat this. With God, this is possible. This is what is being communicated. I try to write it different ways, but like, I I simply and you simply, we need God to just guide our hands. God, guide my hands. Guide what I'm doing. I need your hands on my hands. I can't and I don't want to do this without you. I like what Adrian Rogers, a pastor, said about this text. He says, because of the weakness of our flesh, we need to have our frail hands overlaid by God's omnipotent hand. When our hand is upon the weapon, his hand must be over ours. He's like, don't handle the weapon without the hands of God on your hands. I love this because if we're talking about weapons and spiritual language and the symbolicness of this text, we're told that this book, this, this is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. By the way, the sword of the spirit. 
it's crazy how um, a lot of people can handle this book and there's nothing there. But when you have a man who's filled with the spirit of God and when you have the spirit of God on him or on her and you go, oh, this actually is a sort of the spirit. Like this is, there's something powerful about someone's hands being offered up. Like, God, these are not my hands. These are your hands. God, overlay your hands with mine. I don't want to do this without, I can't do this without you. This, this weapon that we have is ultimately yours. The sort of the spirit. It's, it's yours. It's not mine. It's not my weapon. It's not the way we wrestle against flesh and blood, principalities and powers. God's like, I've given you weapons, but it's of my spirit. It's not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There's constantly this idea of like, I need God's hands on. I can't do this alone. So I wrote it out this way. Uh, the reason that many of us are not overcoming the flesh, the enemy, and the world is because so often we try to wield spiritual weapons in our own strength. This is the problem. I'll try. How can I do it in my own strength? We can't. How many of you try to battle the sin nature in your flesh, in your strength? We're, we're terrible at it. I'm not good at it. But when God's like, I'm with you, and I'm overlaying my hands on you, my spirit's with you, and you're not alone— that I actually am with you as you, as you wield this weapon, yes, there's a difference in that. And so that's, that is the idea. Here's what basically um, is happening here. If you guys remember, there's a story of Jehoshaphat. He's a good king. Uh, and Jehoshaphat we, was about to go to battle with the Moabites and different people around him. And they're like very fearful. They're outnumbered. Like, what are we going to do? And this guy named Jehaziel, he said this. And this to me summarizes this text. Jehaziel said in, in 2 Chronicles 20, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. I love that. We have to realize this. The battle's not mine. That's why you say, hey, Josh, are you losing sight of what, hey, hey, Joash, king of Israel, the Syrians are surrounding you. The battle's never been yours. It's never been yours. I think the danger sometimes is like, ah, what am I going to do? And you're assuming it's on you only. Time and time again, Elisha's tried to show, like, remember we saw that earlier, God opened up my servant's eyes that he might see the army surrounding this other army. The battle's never been yours to begin with. This is what Jehaziel says. The battle is not yours, it's God's. I love what Elisha is doing. He's giving this evil, wicked king hope. And it's a moment where like his life could, could have been changed. This is a pivotal, like, again, the north has never had a good king. Yes, good on you for going to Elisha, but it's crazy to me because like this is almost a conversion moment with Elisha and Joash. And he's obeying so far, but then he stops kind of halfway through as we'll see in just a moment. There's just this opportunity, though, for his life to be radically changed. And again, the battle is not yours, it's God's. And I love what one author said. He says, your weakness is not a liability. Your weakness is an asset. <laughs> With God, we have to understand that. In my, in my weakness, God, you're made strong. He actually goes on to say, um, your strength is probably the liability. That's probably the liability. Your weakness is the asset. God's like, I can do things through weak people. It's the strong I, I struggle with. They don't think they need me. They think they can do it themselves. Joash is doing some good. He's seeking out Elisha. Hey, help. What are we going to do? He's like, and Elisha's like, I have one last word for you. I have one last thing. Open that window. Shoot the arrow eastward. By the way, if you see that phrase eastward, he's saying, shoot that arrow towards your enemy. Like, send it out, man. Like, and this is something actually even Romans did. A lot of different actual, like, uh, empires did do something very similar. Maybe it's throwing a spear, but it's primarily an arrow. They would shoot an arrow normally towards their enemy as in a way also to give people hope. Do you see where they are? They're eastward. We're not afraid of them. We're going to fire at the enemy. We're going to fire first, but we're going to go. We're not afraid. Open the window, shoot the arrow, 
and he, this is exactly what he does. Now, verse 18 and 19 is where maybe you're like, what is going on here? What is happening? Let's just jump in verse 18. So verse 18, it goes on to say, and he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. <laughs> then the man of God was angry with him and said, you, have, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What? This, I'll be honest, this is one of the stories when I first read it. I'm like, this frustrates me, right? Because sometimes I'm like, can you just tell me what to do and I'll do it? Just tell me what to do. Don't, you don't read this and go like, this isn't fair. Like, I almost like felt bad for Joash. I'm like, this isn't fair. He just said, you know, strike it. He did it three times. Now, I got to point out a, a thing. I used to think, and there is debate, but I'm pretty confident more in this direction now. I used to think like he took the arrows from the quiver and was like, bang, bang, bang. Probably wasn't that. Strike the ground, like, because he just shot the arrow through the window and he's saying strike the ground, meaning he shot the arrow the first time with Elisha and went, struck the ground. There's nothing specifically he was aiming at other than aiming towards the enemy. And he's saying strike the ground again. So basically you have more arrows in your quiver. Keep shooting them. The idea that he says you could have done it five or six times implies he had more arrows but didn't fire them. That's what's fascinating to me about this. So the idea is like he has these arrows, bang, bang, bang. And you're like, why does he get mad? Because there's still more arrows in his quiver and he didn't use them. This is the idea. He's like, why are you holding back? Why are you trying to keep some? Think about this. This is actually speaking most likely of his vulnerability. Um, I kind of need these arrows. Like, I kind of want them. If we go to war, I don't want to just, like, get rid of my arrows. I don't know if I'll break on the way down. Like, there's this idea of, like, I want to keep some or I can do this in my own strength. So he's, there's almost this idea of maybe fear of I got to keep it. This also communicates the idea that he didn't do it fully with passion. Like, hey, strike them. Sh strike the ground with these arrows. Bang, bang, bang. He probably has, obviously, five or six. So he has at least a few more. And he's like, what are you doing? Why are you holding back? Why did you stop? Why didn't you do it with a full passion and zeal? You only did this half-heartedly. And I, again, when I first read this, you're like thinking, yeah, I don't get this. Why did he do only three? And then Elisha gets mad with him. That's not fair. Because you see clearly he still had more arrows. And he didn't fully give everything in a sense over to God by faith and say, I trust you, God, completely. Take it all. This is the problem. This is one of those things where I want to do make some application because I think this is actually really important. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 says it this way, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you're going. Basically, notice that we never really quote that last half. But he's like, you're going to die. You're going to die. Why hold anything back? Why keep anything back? You're going to die. There's like, give it all. You're going to die. Give it all. Whatever you find your hand to do, do with all its might. Like you need to do it well. Don't just do it, but do with passion. How many of you know there's a difference between doing something and doing something with passion? There's a way to do something. And then there's a way to do it really well. I love my wife because my wife's the person that like, I, you know, does something. I mean, she does it really well. Sometimes I'm like, please just hold back a little bit. Like she goes all in, but I love it. There's something beautiful. Like I'm going to go all in. I'm not going to withhold. I got to keep going. Basically what he's saying to him is, why did you stop? Listen up, what a phenomenal question today. God's like, you've been giving it, you gave most of it or some of it away, but you still had more. Why did you stop? There's one of those things where I'm just trying to pray through this text for our church and our body, and it's like, maybe there is this idea of you're giving to God in some capacity or in some way, or like, here's my life, but you kind of stopped halfway through. Why did you stop? Lord, I give you most of me, at least half of me. Why did you stop? Why did you stop fighting that sin that was once 
frustrating you and you cared about it and you wanted to feed it, but then you're like, whatever, it doesn't work anyways. Why did you stop? You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years and just been able to hopefully just meet with people, love on people, speak biblical truth into them. Here's what I do find at times. I found that with couples or individuals, for example, I'm just giving examples of maybe there's a couple going through it and I'm like, hey, here's some things I want you to do as the husband. Here's some things as the wife I want you to do. Here's what God has called you to be as the husband. Here's what God has called you to be as the wife. Many times what I've seen is, okay, I will do it. And you're like, okay, did you do it? I did it. Did it work? No. But I tried. And what you see is like this willing to do it. But I'm like, okay, in what capacity and attitude and character and joy did you do it? So meaning, I've seen people like say, hey, here's what I want you to really fight for and work on and put this into your schedule and do this. And they're like, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it with everything I got. I'm going to do it like my soul and my life depends on it. Like, awesome. When you talk to people like that, you're like, oh, I think they're going to, I think they're going to get through this. But then we talk to people like, I, tr- I tried. It's like, what did you try? I tried the thing half-heartedly. It just doesn't work. There, there is something about saying like, no, no, I'm, I'm giving myself fully over to this. I have, again, when it comes to God, there is a way to kind of do those things out of duty and not out of joy. And there's such a difference when you go, I'm going to do this not out of duty necessarily, but out of just joy. God, you've asked me to do this. It's because you love me. You care for me. You're not trying to ask me to do hard things for the sake of doing hard things. You're asking me to do this because you know it's for my benefit. You know it's for my good. You're a good God. You're not trying to withhold anything beautiful or good from me. I know that about you. So I'm not just going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with joy and passion and enthusiasm. There's a difference. Do you guys agree? Okay, I'm not I'm like afraid to ask the question. But how many of you have seen people try, like their spouse try and be like, they like, they try. How many of you, like, you try that yourself personally? You're like, I'm going to try to defeat the sin. But like, there's not, there's like, no, I'm a, but with God's help, I can do this. Like, yes, we'll get this done. This is not my battle. This has never been my battle. This is God's. So this idea of Joash is like, I'm going to shoot a few arrows, but not all of them. I'm going to keep some of them back. This is the concern. Now, I have to like point this out because when I first read this, maybe like you, you go, what? Like, Joash didn't know that he had to shoot all. He just said, strike the ground. Like, he didn't really have the details. And here's the point. Um, sometimes we think this with God. Like, well, I didn't really know. I've heard like, I didn't really know. I'm like, you knew. You knew what kind of God we serve. Like, I didn't really know God. I, you, know, you know what kind of God we serve. Jesus put it this way. I thought this is fascinating. Matthew 25. Do you guys remember this story? The parable of the talents? Bear with me. Just stay with me. In Matthew 25, Jesus gave the parable of the talents. And here's what he said. Remember, he gave five and then two and then one. This is a really fascinating story. The dialogue between the master and his servant. Listen to this. Matthew 25, verse 24. Jesus says, he also had received the one talent, came forward. So the guy with the one. He goes, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Got it. It's back. But his, man, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. You said it yourself. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was mine, my own with interest. Like, what? He's like, Master, I know you're the kind of guy that you're looking for a harvest where you did not sow. I know you're like, you're always looking for more. Like, you're looking for more. I get it. That's what kind of master you are. So I buried it, and here you go. It's back. He goes, you, you knew what kind of master I am, and you still didn't do it? Here's the thing. Joash, you know what God's like. Does God want anything halfway done? Does he want it partly done? Does he not want it done with like, hey, here you go, God. I'll, I'll, shoot, I'll shoot a few. It's like, you know this. You know this. And yet you still relied on just bare minimum. 
Listen, um, I just want to fight against this, I guess. That's what I'm trying to point out. Like, the bare minimum mentality, we have to fight against that. The isn't this enough? Come on. Three arrows? I mean, my quiver's gonna, kind of getting empty here, God. We have to fight against this mentality. As a father to young kids, and maybe you guys get the idea of like, no, no, the bare minimum? No, that is not the kind of mentality we're fighting for. As followers of Jesus, there is this idea of, like, hey, when someone asks you to go one mile, go two. There's just this idea of like, don't just fight for bare minimum. Men, Father's Day, this idea. We need to keep going. Why stop? Years ago, I gave half my quiver. Why half? Like the idea is like, I gave God some of my life or I gave God some of it. Keep going. You know what kind of master he is. You know. Don't act like I didn't know. You said strike it. I did do it, didn't I? It's not going to fly. It's not going to work. There's this idea of like, keep going. Are you guys with me? Keep going. All the dads are like, yes, I do this with my kids. I get it. Here, here's the idea too. This idea is um, basically, okay, Joash, you struck it three times. So guess what? You're going to defeat the Syrians three times. This is powerful. You went three, God will meet you at three. Do you not realize if you went more, God would have met you at more? There's this idea of like in accordance to his faith, he did it, and then God met him in accordance to his faith. James 2 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So good, good. You did exercise some faith, and God met you at the level of your faith. But how about a more? You had more. Why not offer more? Let me give this story in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is walking. Some blind men see him. Matthew 9. Uh, I'm going to put the verse up here. He said, Jesus, see these blind men, it says, he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. Okay, let's just put that verse up and focus on that. According to your faith, let it be to you. And he's like, master, you can, you can open my eyes. You believe, and I'll meet you at your faith. In accordance to your faith, let it be to you. There is a danger in at times in this. Here's the danger. I think sometimes this idea of faith gets abused, sadly, in the church, like I talked about at the very beginning. Hey, if you have faith, you should never get sick. No, Elisha proves that. But there is this idea we go to the other extreme where like we act like faith doesn't matter when faith matters deeply to the heart of God. Okay, Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it's impossible to please him. You must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith matters to God. It does. I know that all of us, there's also the gift of faith. Some of you might have more faith than others. I've seen this just, it's funny when I meet Christians, I'm like, oh my gosh, like they actually really believe God. What I've noticed is God meets them in that faith. It's so beautiful when you're around Christians. So like, no, I think God's going to show up. I've had people have way more faith than me. Be like, I think God's going to do this. And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. And then God does it. You're like, I guess you're right. It's not always about like my faith. I love what I love is like I, being around, you know, you think about Jesus wanting to heal the little girl and there's people scoffing, ha, you can't heal her. And he's like, get out of the room, get out of the room. It's like those who have this faith, he's like, come on in, come on in. In accordance to their faith, he met the blind man. In accordance to Joe Wash's faith, strike them three times. That's all you want to give. Okay, God will let you do that. It says in verse 25 that he struck them three times. Literally says, 1325, three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Yeah. God met him in his faith. I don't know exactly how this might be applied to you. I really don't. Trying to understand this and pray through this week because I don't want this just to be theory. I do think there's times in our life where God's like, this will require more faith. There's absolutely times in my life that I can't just like coast or be on cruise control spiritually. There are times I'm like, wait, 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 this is different. And maybe God wants to answer this, but maybe I need to partner with him in this faith journey. Maybe this is different than me. Just like, well, if God wants to, he will. 
That's not always the mentality or mindset God wants. There are times to slow down and press in and say, God, is this one of those things where you're actually asking me to kind of join you in this journey of faith where it's going to stretch me, it's going to challenge me, it's going to require more of me? Have you guys had those moments in your life where you realize God's like, cruise control Christianity is not going to work? Have you had those moments? Like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to fly. You actually have to participate with God in this work. You have to shoot the arrows. You have to let them fly. Do you want to shoot more? Shoot more. You want to shoot less? You can shoot less. God's going to meet you in that faith. And I've noticed there's times in my life where God's like, you've got to actually exercise faith here in a different way than maybe you have been when you're on cruise control. There are times where I'm like, okay, Lord, like, I need to press in. I need to seek. I need to, I need to pursue you in this way. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He says, it is a fact that God has purposed all things, both great and little. Neither will anything happen, but according to his eternal purpose and decree, it is also a sure and certain fact that oftentimes even hang upon the choice of men. Their will has a singular potency. It's a fact that God's going to act according to his providence. And it's a fact God will act according to men's faith. It's essentially what he's saying. God's going to act according to his sovereignty and his providence, what he wants to do. But there's times where God's like, I'll actually meet you where you're at. This is why we see prayer. When you, if you struggle with prayer and these arrows, how do we not, to me, I can't read the story, not think of prayer. Because you're reading this, it's almost like I'm shooting in the direction of my enemy. I don't know if this will land. God tells me to do it, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in faith. God, you tell me you're going to give me victory. You said strike the ground. Okay, here's how much I'm going to give to you. I'll give a few. What I see that so oftentimes is in prayer, you get around people who are like, listen, this might be one of those seasons we're going to keep asking, seeking, knocking. We have not because we ask not or we're asking to miss. We're asking for fleshly reasons. Here's the idea. Um, prayer, and maybe you've heard it put this way, but it is so profound to me when you actually really let it sink into your heart. Prayer is not a way for me to get my will done in heaven, but it's a way for God to get his will done on earth, right? We're praying your kingdom come. Please hear me on that. Prayer is not like, God, how can I get my will done in heaven? God, here's my checklist. I want you, I want you to do this. Sometimes God is not a secretary or an assistant to be like, go do this, God. Thank you. Okay. Prayer is a way for saying, God, what is it you want to do? Okay, how can I help participate and get it done? So here's the idea. Um, do you know that God wants to save people? Do you know that he wants to? God is willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So you're like, I feel silly praying for my non-saved friend. Um, God wants you to. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, therefore turn and live. Like the point is, God actually wants us to participate with him in faith to accomplish his will on earth. And I do believe that there are times where like it's going to happen because it is in God's plan and sovereignty. It's a fact, as Spurgeon says, but it's also, it's also a fact that he will use men and women according to their faith. As Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. So there are times we should and need to say, no, no, this idea of just, well, if God wants to, he will. If he doesn't want to, he won't. We got to fight that theology sometimes. I got to press you on that. I see that in my own life and character. If God wants to, he will. If he won't, he won't. Yes and no. God is sovereign, yes. But God in his sovereignty has asked us to participate in bringing his kingdom on earth. And he's asked us to move in faith and say, your kingdom come, your will be done. And what is it to me to say, God bless you, but I need to love and show actual actions with my faith. And it's not enough to say, I'll pray for you. It's like, no, let me actually show by my faith, by my works. So there's times where God will get it done no matter what. Yes, thank you, God. We know Revelation 21, 22, the new heaven, new earth. It's going to happen with or without me, right? It's going to happen. There's going to be a new heaven, new earth. God's going to come, guaranteed. There's other things like this micro level. I feel like God's like, yeah, I want that to happen as well. This is my will that none should perish. I want you to participate in my will. And so I think there's times where God's like, I'm actually asking you in your faith to move forward. Hey, you're going to have victory over the Syrians. Do you notice that he gave him like a blank check? This is the arrow that's sent out from the window that gives you victory over the Syrians. Like actually what he said beforehand is like made it sound like complete victory over the Syrians. He's like, oh, you only gave partially, you'll receive partially. There is this idea of like, 
an abundance of what you give will be given to you. So the church has erred throughout history, which is sometimes in the faith movement, we go, if you have faith, you never get sick. That's not true. That's a lie. That's not biblical at all. Then there's the other side that we just kind of reject all faith and we kind of get scared of that. We're like, mm, I don't want to, you know, get in this too faithy of a thing. When Jesus is like, no, no, we walk by faith. Faith is the only way to please God. So we have to avoid the two dangers that can happen in the church. Are you guys with me? One is acting like if you just name it and claim it, anything will happen that you say. No. Another is like, well, God will be God. I'll just do my thing. Like, like no, God wants you to participate with him in this. This is so important. I'll throw one more verse up here. It's Matthew 21, uh, and I'll just, or Matthew 25, and it's just to confuse us. Um, Matthew 21. Jesus was talking about the fig tree. In Matthew 21, 21, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I get it that verses like this have been abused, but abused. And I also get it that verses like this have been neglected. And so there's this idea of part of our job is to say, God, what is it you want to do? It's not me walking up to mountain and be like, let me show you what kind of faith I have. Mountain, that's not going to happen. Because that's, what, that's me asking for my own selfish gain and notoriety. James says you have not because you ask not, or you ask amiss, you ask selfishly. No. But if God's will is like, maybe God wants to do something or get us over there, and it seems like this mountain has to be removed. Like this, there's no way this could happen according to man's will. But let's just pray and in faith ask that God will move these, you know, proverbial mountains that seem to be in our way. Let's just pray and ask in faith that God would do this. And when you get with other people that say, yes, I do believe that he will, because God wants to save or God wants to heal or God wants to do that. There's something so beautiful when you're on other believers like that. I'll say this, as time kind of goes on, that's not, I get it. By nature, I'm more cynical. I'm more skeptical. That's my default. My default is like, mm, let me look into that. That's my default. I love to read. I love to study. I love looking at different perspectives. So my default sometimes is to be like a study student of the word, which is not a bad thing. It's great to be a student, but I, some, I, we got to leave the student of the word and be a doer of the word. We have to be a doer of the word. We have to. The danger is all of us right now being hearers of the word and not doers. That is the danger. And James 1 bled into James 2, which is by faith. Faith will have works. Faith will say, no, God wants to do this. And he says, if you ask anything according to my will, he hears you. That is powerful. So I want to fight the danger on one end. I'm not trying to say name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. And also I'm not saying on the other extreme, which is basically, well, whatever God wants to do. And if he doesn't like, no, we got to fight that mentality too. Maybe God's saying, I'm asking you, I'm asking you to participate in this work with me. It'll be prayer. It'll be persistent prayer. It'll maybe be a prayer with a broken heart. It may be prayer that lasts decades, but I'm asking you to participate with me. And are you willing to shoot all of those arrows? Or are you going to leave some of them behind? He's basically saying, don't quit. Don't waste your life. Whatever you find your hand to do, do it with all its might. Stop Christians doing things half-heartedly. Keep moving on. Do not quit. Keep going. You have some in the tank, use it. That's what he's saying. This is insane to me. When I read this story, I'm like, what? This goes against some things I grew up with. Because my point is like, I think that we can err on two extremes. And I think God is saying, I want to participate. I want you to participate with me in this work I want to accomplish on earth as is in heaven. I've asked you, I've invited you to participate with the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. So listen, can I tell you guys that will take faith? That will take faith. There'll be things you're like, I don't know how God's going to do it, but let's pray. And you know what? I actually think maybe, and you get around people like, I actually think God wants to do this. I think God wants to do this. 
I actually believe God wants to do this. I'm going to ask in that way that God wants to do this. That is so cool. So that I see that progression of faith happen with people. They go, I think God wants to. Two, I think God's going to. Two, let's, let's pray in a way that God, God you're going to do this because I know you want this more than I do. And that is so beautiful when you're around people like that. It is so insane. Elisha is so showing Joash there is hope for today. What God has given you, use it. This is not your battle. It's his. But he's given you some arrows. Shoot them. Remind, remind others. Remind yourself right now. This is not you. This is the Lord's doing. But he's asking you to obey step by step. Open the window. Pull back the bow. Shoot them. Sh- strike them down multiple times. Why do you only do half-heartedly? Why do you only do some? Do it all. Give it all. Give it all away for Jesus. This is the idea. So there's hope for today. God meets you in accordance to your faith is what we see here in this text. And we are gonna move on and we'll just end with this number two and it's a lot less. But number two, this weird story in verse 20, his bones, right? His bone, this man's thrown into a grave and we'll just put the verse up so you can read it. Verse 21, the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Let's, you're like, why are you even continuing this? Because um, this is a crazy story. There's actually nothing like this in the Bible. Uh, people have abused this text to use, speak of relics. We've seen this like in the Roman Catholic Church. We'll keep fingernails or vials of things. You're like, I don't think we should do that. All right, this is not, this is not the intent to make it all relic Here's the idea, obviously. A couple thoughts we should take away from this text. Number one is this. When you live for God, even when you're dead, you leave an impact. That's the first idea. All right. Uh, Elisha, when you live for God and you die, you still leave an impact. You still, your legacy can go on as, as, as long as you've lived for God, sought for God, even in your death, there's not really death. There's life. So the idea is even in your death, your legacy will still go on. Uh, you still can leave an impact. So live for God. That's the first idea. Here's the second one. Um, in life and in death, there is power in the word of God. Let me explain this. Elisha is a prophet. Prophets, again, remember, primarily known for speaking forth the word of God. In life and in death, there is power in the word of God. We have to see that. There's power in the word of God. This guy, Elisha, he's an ambassador of God to the people. He speaks forth God's word to the people in his life and in his death. We said there's resurrection power. Here's the other idea. I think God is actually painting a really big picture for the story of Israel. Remember how we began? The kingdom of Israel and of Judah is slowly starting to be chipped away at, as it says in chapter 10. So they're losing their grasp. They're losing their kingdom. It's splitting. It's fracturing. People are pursuing different hearts and idols. Here's what I believe actually God is saying. Number three, even when there's dead bones, I can bring about new life. This is important because understand this, you guys, in less than a hundred years, the northern part of Israel, and just a few kings in a hundred years, we're going to see that the northern part of Israel is actually being taken captive by the Assyrians. Remember this, in case this confuses you. The the Jews were taken in the north, of Israel, the Jews were taken captive by the Assyrians, and the ones in the south, the tribe of Judah primarily, are taken by the Babylonians. So the Jews in the north are going to be slaves in Assyria. The Jews in the south are going to be slaves in Babylon. If you remember, there's a prophet during that time. Well, imagine the north, the north will fall first. Then we'll see Judah fall, as we read throughout the second Kings. The north will fall, then we'll see the south fall. We're going to see in this time of exile, as slowly wave after wave of Jews are being taken as slaves into these foreign lands, there's going to be a guy towards the end named Ezekiel, and he'll be that guy that transitions with them out of Israel into Babylon, and he's going to be prophesying. He sees some crazy and amazing things, and maybe remember this. In Ezekiel 37, we have this up here. In Ezekiel 37, God takes Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones, 
And God was like, speak to these bones. And the bones start coming together, like that song. The left knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. I don't know, whatever. The bones start coming together. They start being formed. And then God's like, breathe. And then God breathes on them. Their spirit fills these dry bones and they come alive. And God is like, just like Israel, it seems dead. They're in exile. The land of Israel, the nation of Israel, the north and the south, Israel itself as a whole, dead, dead bones, dry bones in a valley but I will one day again breathe my breath of life on them and these dead bones will resurrect. And what's beautiful is that that actually happened to Israel. They went back into the land with Nehemiah. I believe it also happened in 1948 when Israel became a nation, but we see Israel have life again in its lungs. God breathed into them again. My point of bringing this up today is you see these dead bones bring this guy back to life. And I love that. God's like, this is just a taste or a picture of what I'm going to do. These dead bones are going to make things alive again. These dead bones will be alive again. And I do believe it's number three, even when there's dead bones, God is saying, I can bring new life. And I think this is a taste of what's going to happen in Ezekiel 37. Another thing, um, we have hope in God's power over the grave. Okay, so this whole idea of hope for tomorrow, do you not get, like, this is what I have to see. His dead, this guy touches the bones and resurrects. We have hope in God's power over the grave. The Bible time and time again tries to say, death is not the end for a believer. Death is not your end. It's not. Death is not the end. There's constant this idea of resurrection power. And here's like the last point. Coming in contact with Jesus's atoning death gives us life and resurrection. This is the idea. This man came in contact with this dead body of Elisha, resurrected. Coming in contact with Jesus's atoning death for you gives you life and resurrection. I beg you to come in contact with Jesus's atoning death. You believe on the cross and you will be saved. Believe on Jesus, that God placed your sin and my sin on Jesus, that because by his stripes, we are healed. And because Jesus died and entered in the grave, and because he rose again, you and I will too one day rise. Come in contact contact with Jesus's death, so to say, so that you too might resurrect. And this is what we see. There's hope for today, Joash. There's hope for tomorrow. God is so good to take a wicked and rebellious people and say, I'm going to give you hope when you do not deserve it. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to be kind and gracious and compassionate because that's who God is. Kind and Kindness and grace is not a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. God is like, this is who I am. Exodus 34, 6, I am gracious, compassionate, long-suffering. I show mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. That is the God we have. God is like, let me give you hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Let me show you that though there's death, there will be life. And that is found in Jesus. Men and women both, listen, this is for everybody, but keep going. Keep going. Why do we throw in the towel? Why do we stop and we still have something else to give? Why? Why are we? Is there fear? Is there some sort of thing we want to hold on? Give it up. Give it up. You lose your life, you'll find it. Give it up. Keep going. Don't stop. Why did you stop is what he's saying. Why did you stop? You had more to give. Don't stop. Amen? There's hope for today. There's hope for tomorrow. I want to do this. We're going to end with just worship because we have a beautiful king named Jesus who gives us this hope today. And we want you to know this hope in Jesus. But I am going to ask not just the dads. I'm going to ask the men to stand. I just want to pray over the men with this mindset of keep going. So men, um, if you're a man, would you just stand up so we can pray for you and over you? If you're a dad as well, just that special gratefulness and thankfulness that you've sacrificed, you've given, you're trying to live for others. And we just want to say, well done. Keep going. Keep fighting. If you would, ladies, we did this for you a few weeks ago. Let's do this now for the men. Extend your hand towards them. Can we just pray over them and thank God for the men that love Jesus in this room? And uh, let's do that now. Father, we just want to say thank you so much, first and foremost, for your son, Jesus, 
who showed us what it's like to be a man who lives for others. More importantly, because of his atoning death and resurrection, we have life. And we want to imitate and be like Jesus. God, I just want to pray for all the men, first of all, in this room, that these men would say, not my will, but your will. That they would leave nothing, so to say, in the tank or in their quiver. That they say, whatever I have is yours. God, I don't want to quit. It's exhausting at times. It's tiring. That we have a real enemy, but the battle is not ours, it is yours. And I ask that you'd remind these men today God, that you would fill them with your spirit as we just read even with the dry bones or maybe we feel like dry bones. Would you breathe your breath of the spirit of God on us? Fill us, Lord. Fill these men for all the dads, all the fathers. God, bless them. God, if they have older kids or younger kids, we either way, we need energy. We need strength. We need focus. And we just ask that Jesus, our heart and our eyes would be on you that we'd come to you, that you'd be the source of our strength, that our weakness is not a liability, but it's an asset in your hands, in your hands. We bring you our weakness and then we ask for your strength. That God, you give us, uh, for the spirit of heaviness, you give us the garment of salvation. And we just wanna say thank you. So bless these guys, bless these men, bless these fathers, God. Pour out your spirit. Let's just rest in the finished work of your son, Jesus, in your precious name, amen. Why don't the rest of you stand? Let's just close out with worship.